Hey, welcome to today's episode of the Hive With Us podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Martinez. Today we have special guest, Ian Horowitz. Where, were you from? Where part of the country are you from, Ian? I'm actually just outside of Philadelphia, but our office is in Baltimore, Maryland. So we are hardcore East Coasters. And you're under snow. <laughs> we are under snow. Uh, you know, that's the one that's the one downside to being on this side of the country. It does snow every once in a while, but every once you know, in a while, like half the year. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not that. Come on, man. You guys got the mountains right over there in California and you know that whole region. It's snow all year round. We are not that bad, but no, we're over here on this side of side of the country. But you know, it's uh we're a little bit ahead of you. I guess that's how you could look at it. Yeah, I uh, one thing I hate about like the the varying differences is the time zone change, especially for the Eastern time. Because I'm like, I get up like at nine ten a.m. That's when I start work, and it's like one o'clock. <laughs> yep. Yeah, our day's half over. You guys are just getting started. So sometimes there's good things to it. Sometimes there's bad because like when you're dealing with someone on the West Coast, you're like, man, they're like, oh, like our one investor, he's out near San Diego, and. He's like, can I call you around five? I'm like, dude, that's eight o'clock. It's bedtime for the kids. Like, uh, my day's over, bro. Like, I'm mentally fried. So, I feel <laughs> the pain, but you know, it, it's all good, man. So, so we're gonna try, kind of jump right into it. You were a firefighter to storage investor. How long? How long were you a firefighter? When did you kind of make that transition? Was it a hard transition? Quick transition? Kind of jump into a little bit of that story. Yeah, man. So we, my business partner and I, we were both uh, firemen for the city of Baltimore. So if you ever watched The Wire. All the stories are true. If you saw the riots that happened, that's where we worked. It's it's all true. We worked in the heart of West Baltimore. It was an interesting time, you know, but we traded we traded making money in exchange for security and doing a job that we love, right? So we get hired in 07 and 08 respectfully, uh, respectfully. And, you know, within, I think by 2009, we were getting furloughed. They were shutting companies down. They were attacking our pension system. They changed our schedule, our benefits, like all these things just kept getting thrown at us. And we're like, dude, we want to have kids. We can barely afford to live. There's no overtime. Like this is not sustainable by any means. And um, I would say 2012, 2012 is really where I got the itch. I bought my first house in 2012. My business partner started wholesaling in 2013 we eventually came together in 2014 and created Equity Warehouse, what it is today, you know, just grinding away on properties. But a lot of it came from, you know, we were firemen for 15 years. Yeah, you know, we built some of our business while we were still firemen, you know, and it was, it was a great learning experience. There's a lot of traits that carry from being a fireman that carry over to being a real estate investor. You know, one of them is, you know, when it's on fire, we keep going at it and we, we don't leave until the fire's out. Well, it's the same thing inside of our business. There's a dumpster fire going on. We keep going at it over and over and over again because we're too dumb not to, right? People are running out, right? We start buying in 2012, presumably the bottom of the market. People are running out of a burning building. We're running in because we, we're going to save people. Well, we didn't know that was the bottom of the market, but people are running out. We're running in buying real estate. People are like, you're crazy. You're like, I, you know, I don't know any better. I'm going to go do my job. Those are some of the competitive advantages we learned by being a fireman. I know I kind of jumped all around there and gave you a quick overview, but that's really uh, what we did for the last 15 years or so. So first of all, I want to say thanks for thanks for your service to, to, to the tech community. I think a lot of people that, that run towards fires... I think we're, they're a little nuts, but I think I think it takes a certain kind of person to do that. So I, I, I appreciate your service in that in that aspect. <laughs> well, 
Thank you, but it required me to be cleanly shaven, so I'm kind of glad I'm out of them days and can grow a beard. But yeah, it's uh, you know, it's appreciated because there is a uh, yeah, I could go with a mustache. I don't look as good, but I. <laughs> It's a tough, it's a tough life, man. But you know, here's the thing is that like a lot of people in that community is like, it's where you start to see like bad landlords. You start to see how people treat other people. And you're like, dude, like, you know, like politically, I'm not on that side of the fence, but like in the same sense, people deserve a quality place to live. They be, they deserve to be treated in the right way. And we started in section eight housing, right? Like you gotta remember, like I'm at work and these dudes are talking, I don't know if I can curse on your podcast, but they're talking shit. They're talking shit to me. They're like, you're going to be another slumlord. You know that house we were at the other week that was on fire? That's going to be you. And I'm like, nah, man, I'm going to do it different, even though we're servicing Section 8 tenants at that time, man. Like, it just, it really opens your eyes to the way of life working in those communities. And the people of the street are appreciative of the service that you provide. Nah, it's it's one of those things where, like, everybody has their own varying opinion, but you have to, like, peek through the noise and make your own standard because you as an individual investor create whatever standard you want. Yep. Yeah. A hundred percent. And you know, if you're not going to, I think too many people look at it, you know, you talk about building a standard and like what type of house that they want to create or what type of service or product that they want to create and deliver to other people. Too many people think with their pocket, one thing that we knew in the fire department, it was always like, keep your eyes open, keep your ears open, keep your mouth shut. So like for us, it was always like, let's just do the right thing keep our heads down and don't brag about it on Facebook. There's not many posts that you can find of us bragging about assets that we've bought or houses that we made six figures on. We didn't do that. We just kept our head down and did our job and created the right standard that we believed in and just kept going at it. And like I said, we were too dumb not to not continue to go at it. And that's how we built what we have today. So 2013 is a long time ago. I know that's a, <laughs> a lot yeah. of time has passed since then. You you kind of started in Section 8. How many units did you get in Section 8? How many do you have now currently? Yeah, so we started flipping houses. Well, that's a lie. I, I built a 10-house portfolio. My business partner, uh, he starts wholesaling, You know, gets out of six figures of debt. We joined forces and we uh, we wholesale a package off and flip a house. Then we wound up flipping a bunch of houses. And then basically from like 2000. 15-ish to about 2019, we built a 100-house portfolio of Section 8 housing. We directly own about 40 of them still today. We're partners in another 40 or 50. We just started selling those single families off, but it's because we've gone up in the asset class chain, right? Like Those properties don't serve us the same way that a 76-unit apartment building or a 44-unit apartment building serves us today. So we're just starting to sell those single families off, the ones that cause us the most headaches. But as of today, we have about 250 residential units between multifamily and single family in the Baltimore metro area. Yeah. I talked to a guy who builds multifamily in, in Philadelphia and they like you can buy those eight plexus little strip row home. Yeah. They'll they'll build all this stuff into. I think it's really I think Philadelphia and Chicago has it too, and New York has it too. It has these little like little little <sighs> Really cool multifamily houses you don't really see anywhere else. Well, it's the older it's the older building stock that we got out of here. Like we were joking about East Coast, West Coast, right? Like you got to remember our building stocks completely different out here. Like everything's much more densely populated. I remember one time this is a useless story, but I'll tell it anyway. I went to L.A. one time and everyone's like, "This is the greatest city ever," and I'm like, "This is not a city, man. It's just like a lot of land." Like 
it's different to us. But you got to remember how we everything over here is so densely populated. So we do have to do like really compact up buildings to be able to build multifamily garden style apartments in some locations inside the city. Like we own a garden style, but there's not many garden style type apartment buildings in Baltimore city, just because there's not enough room for them, you know? So it is a, sometimes where you operate is what allows you to have that different type of building product. That's different and unique to your area. Yeah. I, it's, I, I want to talk a little bit, a little bit and I think it's hundred percent true. I think you have, we have a lot more land mass and then they're trying to like densely populate. Um, but you're, you're an older city too. It's just, it's just the plain fact here. All, every, all the East coast cities are older cities. So, they have, uh, they're dealing with that, that age old stuff that was built back then. How was the transition into like storage and multifamily? Uh, a lot of people, they struggle with that. What were some things you kind of, you kind of dealt with in that transition? Cause I think a lot of people that they're like, I'm single family forever. You know, that, that was us, dude. That was a uh, single family for life. You know, it was like, dude, I, I can imagine owning hundreds or thousands of these and it sounds so cool. And you're like, those idiots over in multifamily, like they don't know what they're talking about. And plus I don't have that kind of money to do that. And <laughs> a lot of our struggle coming up, and it's funny you ask that because we, we talk about this a lot is like, it was like, how do you do it? I'm like, I don't know. You just fucking do it, man. Just, just go do it. Right. But that we were kind of forced, you know, 2019, we were buying shells, you know. I know you guys don't have shells this cheap, but we were buying shells for five, five to twenty-five grand. We'd be all in at one hundred twenty grand, and they'd be worth a buck fifty, and we were getting twelve hundred to fourteen hundred dollars rent. That was our wheelhouse all day, every day, just bang, 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 bang. One day overnight, next you know those same houses shell. I'm talking shells. Like you walk in and you can see the sun. Dude, the next day they're worth 50 grand. You're like, dude, okay, rent's got to be like $1,700, $1,800. No, rent's still $1,250. I'm like, what are you guys doing? So the barrier to entry got easier and easier and easier leading into 2019, 2020, just pre-COVID. And it kind of forced our hands to start looking at other asset classes. And we wanted bigger. There was always like an urge to be like, all right, I want to do a little bigger. I want to do a little bigger. Some of the issues were revolving around capital. What banks are going to finance? Can you imagine doing 76? Like that's overwhelming thinking about that. And what I would say is by cutting our teeth in single family and doing the same thing over and over and over again, it built a banking relationship. It built a network. It built guys seeing what we were doing, offering to invest with us. I was like, okay. And eventually we wound up buying uh, a really big 76 unit apartment building. Prior to that, we bought a seven unit a 7,000 square foot commercial building, 44 unit. Like we were kind of like dilly dallying all around it. And another thing I would say is what helped us get over it was, you know, when I'm at work for 24 hours, I'd be on this damn thing all the time, not looking at Facebook or Instagram. I was signing up for everybody's email distribution list to see how they were syndicating deals. How are they buying these gigantic apartment buildings? Cause I couldn't put the two and two together. So then finally I get a pro forma. I'd see how they would do it. Then I'd re-underwrite the deal how I saw it. I'm like, there's no way they're making money. There's no way they're making money. Well, the funny thing is most of these guys aren't making money. They're just collecting fees. And I was like, well, shit, I figured that out. But it allowed me to do it over and over and over again to the point where we were comfortable. And then when the right opportunity showed itself, we were able to jump right on it, which we'll talk about at some point. But you know, we were able to buy a 76-unit apartment building with 90% owner financing. It was probably one of the wildest deals we've done. But had we not done all those single family houses, 
flipping 100 houses, building a 100-house portfolio, doing some small multi, figuring out or instead of like, you know, some guys just get success or like, boom, on to the next thing. It's like, no, we had success. Now it's time to refine it. Let's hire an operations manager. Let's hire an office person. Let's hire a maintenance guy. Let's figure out Appfolio or whatever software we were on at the time. We're on Appfolio now. Building the system and processes, then it's like, cool. Today, what I can do, and even at then, but I didn't realize it is, we can look at almost any asset class and say, all right, how does this fit into our system? We do construction well. Let's find stuff where we do construction first, management second. And that's really how we made the transition by doing the same thing over and over and over again to the point we were so confident it allowed us to get into what everybody perceives as the next level, getting into that next asset class. All right. So I'm going to adjust a few things. The management fees, we're going to jump into that because that's, <laughs> that, that's always funny and I like picking on people. So we're gonna we're gonna jump to that, but I'm gonna jump a little bit forward before that. I want I want to uh, I want to say figuring it out. I think is the base of everything. A lot of people want the shortcut. They want to know. They want to. What's the trick? What's the tool? What's the resource? Who's that person? And a lot of people like I think us as entrepreneurs, you have to figure that shit out. Like whatever it takes, you got to figure that shit out. And sometimes you lose money. Sometimes you're gonna some you're gonna get a lawsuit. You're gonna figure that shit out though real quick. Lose a lot of hair, go gray, whatever it is, man. But again, that goes back to the fire department of us. Yo, you can't leave until this fire's out. Okay, boss, no problem. And you stay there for 12 hours till the damn fire. It's the same thing in our business. How many people, and you, I'm probably out in California, a lot of people got money, right? What's the first thing they do? Pull the wallet out. Let me throw money at it. Let me throw money at it. Guess what? Money is not solving your problem. Most of the time, it's you needing to use these things, those that are listening, your hands, and go out and get dirty and get the damn job done. Too many people come from the standpoint of, oh, it'll work out. Oh, it'll work out. That guy won't fuck me over. This this will work out. You know, you got to go out there and get dirty and get it done. This passive is the biggest joke minus your tax return. It is not passive, dude. It is a full contact sport. I think I think the brain, the brain and hands solve every problem. A hundred percent. All right, let's let's jump into uh, management fees. So this this is I think is going to be a good conversation. I think I think it's a sore point for you, and this is a I think a lot of people don't understand this. So what's your opinion on AUM, <laughs> which is asset under management? Everybody doesn't know. Okay, go ahead. There's there's a fine line of I understand today with what we own that. Yes, you need to keep the lights on, but there's also a fiduciary responsibility not to make all your money on your fees. So from an AUM standpoint, we don't do value. We just do top line revenue and we take a very, very small fee. When I talk a small fee, under a percent off of the top line revenue. So at $150,000 a month on a property, you're talking less than 1500 bucks a month. Some of these people, and I'm sure this is what you're alluding to, AUM is based on their perceived value of the asset. Well, that just you're asking for a goddamn lawsuit. I'm out. So, <laughs> okay, good answer. Good answer. Okay, let's talk about. Are you are you a fund by chance? We're not a fund. We do single purpose entity syndications uh, or private yeah. placements. Yep. Okay. Okay. So this is this is where syndications and funds come in. You talked about uh, management fees and acquisition fees and disposition fees. Let's 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 dig in these multifamily people's a little bit because nobody talks about this and nobody likes picking on them, but I do. So no, let it rip. Let's go. I like it. They need to be called out, man. 
let's have some fun with this. So I heard th- there's a lot of this, but a lot of foreclosures happening through 2023. I think 2023 was a rough year for a lot of people. And uh, such the interest rates rising. It put a, p- a lot of people under the gun where now they're facing foreclosure, but they still got paid. <laughs> yep. That's so that's, that's the joke, right? Like that's the joke in it. I love how like people are like, yeah, man, I'm investing in this deal. I own 80% of it. I, I'm a, I'm a LP. I'm like, okay, you own 80% of nothing, right? They've stripped all the equity out front. And if for some odd chance this thing does right and the markets go in the correct direction, there'll be a payday again for everyone at the end. They already got paid. And when Dan and I, oh, sorry, I won't go off on a tangent, but I'll, I'll tell you my, I'll continue to tell my thesis on this. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Okay, so when Dan and I, so you gotta remember this first deal that we ever did, the seventy-six unit apartment building that we raised, truly raised capital for. I needed to raise a million bucks, and I, I didn't know how to do it. I yeah. kept looking at. It, I said, "I'm not gonna own twenty percent of this. That's stupid." And and I knew people were getting fees, and I'm like, "I can't look my friends in the eye and be like, yo, I'm gonna get a, you know, basically a hundred thousand dollar payday on that.'" I was like, "I'm not doing. I'm in this for the long game. Like we've always personally signed our debt. We've always been in this." For the long game. And I was just like, man, I can't do it. So we restructured our deals to where we own a lying share of it up front, you know, 60%, 70%, but we don't charge the fees. We don't crack people in the head for acquisition fee, disposition fee, development fee, construction management fee, personal guarantee fee, capital raise fee. Did I get all of them? I feel it. Due diligence fee, right? Management management fee right like without a real management company in place if you're charging management fee you better be managing your the people the day-to-day operation right like i understand that and so our thing was listen if we're going to go do it we're going to charge if we're going to charge anything it's going to be because it's keeping the overhead going but more importantly we want to own a bigger share of this deal at the backside because we truly believe in what we're buying we are all in we are personally signing the debt we are doing all this stuff to make this deal happen that we want to get a bigger payday on the backside and that's what motivated us not owning i don't like i get it like owning a little bit of a lot and people get all like you know they get business boners over it but not me dude like i'd rather own a bigger share of a little that perform really, really well and actually pay us on a daily basis is what I'd prefer to do. And that's how we've always structured all our deals. And that's how we want to continue to structure our deals. So, you know, if you're owning 80% of a deal, I would look at it and say, well, how much in fees? It's the first thing I do when I look at any other syndication is what's the fee structure and how are they doing this? Because they're getting paid somewhere. I like I like, I like that, 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 that line of thought process because I think educating LPs because they're getting their money from somebody and they're doing bad business and they make the rest of us look bad. And I think how let's talk about LP structure. So when you're doing syndications or funds, what are tips that an LP that's looking to invest in a fund or syndication, what are things they can look for besides that, that fee structure? I would say, understand what you're buying. And the problem is most people don't, they, they end up, it is a relationship capital game, right? It's reputation building. It's that's what it's all about. And but for me, it's it's really transparently understanding. And I get it. A lot of people invest with us because they like us. And like, oh, those are normal dudes. They get it. My whole thing is if I can't explain it to you, I don't even want you to invest in it. So like when people started showing us waterfall structures, if you hit yeah. this IRR metric and then they get paid this and you get paid that and then the whole thing flip-flops, I'm like, I can't, dude, I can't explain that. 
let alone the last thing I want to do is end up in a courtroom and they're like, well, it's actually 14.99 and you screwed these guys and you, because your rounding error went up to 15, you triggered this. You all, I don't, I don't want to get into all that. I wanted to always keep it simple, stupid, the way it works in our office. You know, I come up with the deal. I, we look at the deal. I underwrite it. I show my business partner, very simple minded fireman as well. He says, I don't understand it. Okay. Well, let me go back to the drawing board. Right. So when you're an investor, if, if, the, if the person can't explain it to you and there's the, well, or it kind of work, you know, like those are like red flags for me. I like to be able to go in there. I want it outlined. These guys are making money here. This, and I do as an LP, you should want your sponsor to make money, right? Because that's how we all survive. But in the same sense, they don't need to make it all in one deal, right? They need to make it together with you. And that's how we've always viewed it. And our investor group is mostly friends and firemen, people that we are very personal with. We don't get many outside third, you know, um, outsiders that we don't really know. And that's actually more scary. But we have a we have responsibility to act and perform and we want to show them and we want them to understand what they're investing in. And too many times guys are like, whatever, just take my money. I'm like, no, 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 no. We are sitting down. We are talking about this. I want to, I want you to understand self-storage. I want you to understand how we're making money. I want to understand how you get paid because the last thing I want you to do is go back. You got to understand firemen. It's uh, you know, telephone, tell a friend, tell a fireman. If you tell a fireman, it will get around the whole world. So if you've, screw over one fireman, the whole fire service across this United States will know who I am because I screwed them. But if we do good, they don't know who I am, which is also catch 22, but I'd prefer that nobody knows who I am. And we just continue to do our job the right way. And we're transparent and we share all the information with our investors. I think a lot of GPs, they need to educate their LPs because when you, when you cross that line of understanding where they understand what they're getting, they understand your underwriting, they understand your, where the money's coming from and where the valuation is coming, what the exit strategy is, it makes that that conversation a whole lot easier because you're you're disclosing, which I think is a big thing, you're disclosing all the risk and upside and downside up front. Yep. Yeah. The last thing you want someone to do is be like, I don't understand how I'm getting paid because then when they don't get paid, they're like, well, I still don't understand. Then they call a lawyer friend. Then the lawyer friend's like, yeah, dude, you got a case here. Can you call everybody else that got in this? Actually, you know, you're on the front page of the Wall Street Journal or whatever. And nobody wants that three-letter agency coming to your knock on your door. And in the end, people that are usually investing with you are the closest to you. They are your friends and family. Why do you want to fuck them over? They are your boys. They are your friends. They are the people that you're working with or for. We call it, we tell everyone, hey, you're co-investing with us. You are side by side with us and we are doing this together. This isn't the Ian and Dan show. Yes, we handle the day to day and get the gray hair and the bald heads. But in the same sense, this is your investment too. Like we're in the process of selling some assets. I call a few of our investors. Hey, what do you think about this? We're looking at this. I think this makes financial sense. We're trying to do the fiduciary thing. And they're like, yeah, I get that. I understand that. You know, But it's good to have those conversations and really have your people engaged because guess what that means? If you don't make money on a deal, they're going to want to get in on the next one because they feel like they're a part of the team and they should be a part of the team. And I think that's really what it comes down to. And too many people are disconnected. Well, whatever the act was that allowed people to start crowdfunding and advertising for funds and all that stuff was probably a good thing for the industry. It also created some issues in the industry, allowing people just to syndicate, do whatever they want. And really it just became a big sales game than actually doing the right thing by the investors. Yeah. I see, I see a lot on Twitter, like 
all these GPs are just marketers. A hundred percent. That's all they are because that's what they have to do. They have to market to themselves that they're the smartest dude. They have the best deals. Put your money in over here because, again, you just hit the nail on the head. Yo, they're picking up that six-figure, seven-figure fee because they did a $50 million deal. They got 2% of that. They got a seven-figure payday. It covers their marketing, made some money onto the next one. Who cares if the asset does good or bad? They got non-recourse debt, this, that, and the other thing. And look, those guys aren't as bad as we're making them out to be, but yeah. they are out there and pay attention to it. It's just uh, understand what you're getting into is the, is the bottom line. A hundred percent. There's bad apples in every sector. Yeah, well, and, and yeah, a hundred percent. And investing in syndications, and you know, I'm, I know your audience is into real estate and investing on their own or investing into syndications. We tell all our guys, hey, you should go invest in real estate. You should go do your own thing because your syndication investment with us is just another investment in your book of investments, right? So. Yeah. Some of our retirement funds, I pass off to my hard guy who I co-host my podcast with. He's a hard money lender. I put my money with him. We put our money with under other syndicators because it's like that is just another investment bucket for us inside of here besides our own properties. And again, a lot of people look at it. Dan and Ian got me or whoever's got me. It's no big deal. It'll all No, dude, you need to be actively managing your assets at all times and treat your money and your wealth, even if it's $5, like you are a family office and you're always trying to grow your money in any way, shape, or form you can. Absolutely. Let's jump a little bit of creative finance because I said you got a creative finance. How, how big was that purchase with creative finance and 90% seller finance? Oh, yeah. That was a that was a $5 million deal. And I know we'll showcase that on a, yeah. another episode. But yeah, dude that, was a, dude, that was a $5 million purchase, man. That was, And we'll get into how we found that. But dude, that was the largest owner finance deal that we've done and it was career changing. I'll leave it at that. So it was a really good one. All right. We'll cover that in the next episode. Stay tuned. But let's talk about creative financing as a whole. Are you, are you front edge uh, seller financing on every deal that you try and get? Cause I know. I, I, I well, yeah. See that, that's a problem though. Like, you know, we're not, I don't want to say it like that, but it's like we do a lot of on market deals. And when I say on market, off market, we're dealing a lot with brokers and, you know, brokers, they always want to know how they're getting paid. They hear under financing, blah, 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 blah. They get all butthurt. But what I will say is when that market started to change, I'd say probably about a year ago at this point now, brokers were calling me, hey, seller will take you under financing. Hey, what kind of seller financing terms you got? Yo, if you want to get this deal done at this price, they'll do no 0% interest. Like the floodgates open. And so Brokers are pretty in tune with where the market is from the debt standpoint and how they're going to get deals done and how they're going to get paid. But yeah, we look at owner financing from the standpoint of how to enhance a deal, not necessarily how to make a deal work. A lot of people look at it as, I don't have cash. How am I going to make this deal work? We we are well capitalized from private capital standpoint mm -hmm. and as well as banking relationships that I can get any deal I need to get done across the finish line with a few phone calls. So what does that do for me? That puts us in a position of power to negotiate better pricing, better deals. We can get the deals done. But when someone's like really hard-nosed on price, that's where I pull the owner financing out. I'm like, listen, like I can't control the cost of your property. I can't control the cost of anything. But the one thing that you can control the cost of in this transaction to make the deal work is the cost of capital. And if you're willing to hold a note, then I can make this deal work. And usually people are open to that idea. And we've owner financed multifamily. We've owner financed 
commercial. We've owned a owner finance single family and they all work. It's really just where it works the best. And I, I, I'll tell you, I think asset class wise in the commercial space, owner financing is better served than in the single family space. I know Pace and a couple other guys are really out there pushing it and they do really well with it. But in the commercial space, you got to remember it's B2B, right? We're dealing with business owners that want to do business, understand the velocity of capital, understand the power of earning interest, understand the tax benefits versus dealing with someone who just inherited grandmother's house and fighting with six of their brothers and sisters over this house, you know? Yeah. It's definitely, it's definitely varying for different asset classes. And I think um, it's harder with commercial assets just because it changes hands so often and it's a uh, refinance. All the time. I can see that. Yeah. You got to really find the legacy. Like, you know, we do a lot down in the Southeast for self storage. You get a lot of mom and pop owners that were like, Super successful business person in the area, kept building the storage facility over time. Now they own it completely in cash, no debt, hate the government, don't want any banks. You know, like then you're like, hey, let's have this conversation. Like the doors, the floodgates open at that point. Um, and I think to me, that's where I've had better success in the in the commercial game because I find too many people in the single family game. It's like, oh, my personal credit, or yeah, they maybe they own it single family, they just want it off their books. I've had, I've personally had better luck in the commercial space, but we also spend a lot more time over there than we do in the single family space anymore. So now this is a side question. Have you done any land stuff at all? No, not, not big land guys. It's all around us. Just haven't, uh, haven't done it. I know that's, that's like the best of both worlds, right? People get the land and then they, they own or finance it, but land's not our game. But you gotta remember, I don't have a lot of land over here. Like you guys do. Oh, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. You're in so. Pennsylvania. Yeah. Okay, so let's jump let's jump into storage and what markets you're doing business in and what size business you're looking for. So maybe somebody will send you a lead. You never know. I'm sorry, what was that? Let's let's talk about where you, where you're buying and what size like parameters you're looking for, your buy box. Yeah, sorry, let me close this out so this thing doesn't make noise. Sorry about that. Yeah, you know, we look for stuff that's all right, we look for stuff that's like twenty thousand square feet or bigger, you know, because Let's get let's get let's get this out of the way. It costs the same to run a six thousand square foot facility that it does a fifty thousand square foot facility. The phones, the internet, the marketing, the gate control access, the software, all that stuff, relatively speaking, costs the same whether the facility is six thousand square feet or sixty thousand square feet. So we always look to try to find scale. And look, we'll buy a ten thousand or fifteen thousand square foot if it surrounds something else that we own. You know, like in Baton Rouge, we have three hundred fifty thousand square feet of storage, and one of the sites is thirteen thousand square feet because it surrounds. Excuse me, because it surrounds one of our other facilities or several other of our facilities. It made sense to gobble that up. So for us, we need the size or the ability to expand it the day we buy it and make it worth our time, energy. An effort. And as you go up, you know, look, it, it takes the same amount of work to do a $500,000 deal that it does a 50. And I haven't done a $50 million deal, so that's not fair to say, but it takes the same amount of work to do a $500,000 deal or a $15 million deal. It's all the same damn work, you know, so you might as well do the best you can, you know, get the best bang for your buck. Where we like to focus, I'm not, dude, like a lot of dudes are like tertiary market type guys, like middle of nowhere. That's not my jam, dude. Like we're city boys, I guess you could say. I never really considered myself a city boy, but I like rooftops. We're in Baton Rouge, capital city, Little Rock, capital city, Hattiesburg, Mississippi, big ass city, Livingston, Texas, not a big city. That's the smallest city we own. 
Most of the cities were in 50,000 plus population. Livingston, Texas is 5,000 square feet or 5,000 people, but it's a destination town. So it, it makes sense to why we're there. But for the most part, overall speaking, we like rooftops. We like demand. We like people. We like where there's industry. Yes, we get some additional gray hairs fighting with REITs and those types of things, but that's what works for us. And we ended up in the Southeast just because there was a lot more ability to purchase facilities at scale and do it quickly so we could build a management operation behind it rather than trying to fight for one or two deals up here in Maryland or PA or Delaware. Yeah. They just don't pop up the same way they did in the Southeast. And we just, we were, had the ability to buy. And then once we were in a market, plant a flag and continue to grow around it and build some nice portfolios as we're getting ready to sell some of them for really nice exits because we have the scale and locations and it brings just a different group of buyers. One thing I'll say is I, I'm, I'm the same way. I like invest, I like investing where people want to be. I don't like these tertiary markets not too much. Uh, yeah. I, like that, I like that, that, that style of it. What's your opinion on saturation? Because I know these big, these big money's coming into the storage game. I think it hit the, the multifamily so bad where the cap rates went so lie so low and overpriced. How do you feel about saturation coming into the storage market? Because I think a lot of big capital is moving into that place. Yeah, there was a lot of capital running in during COVID. You know, we bought our first facility in 19 or 20, right around there, you know, pre-COVID. So, and then right after that, there was a rush because what happened in COVID was it showed who's in control and who's not in control, right? There was a lot of consumer protection laws that popped up. You know, uh, this is not political. This is the truth. Like we're in yeah. a very blue state in Maryland. And what happened was we couldn't evict tenants, but we also couldn't utilize any of the funds that were set up for eviction protection from COVID losses. So it was like, we're handcuffed. It's like, I'll keep your tenant, but pay us or don't pay us and we'll evict the tenant. You pick. Like We can't have it both ways. So it really showed the light to who's in control basically nationwide. And I think what that did was people started looking for other asset classes that made sense that they weren't constrained to these types of things. And storage provides that from the standpoint of it's like multifamily. There's a lot of leverage you can pull admin fees, application fees, 24-hour access. But there's also why people are moving towards it is there's no 12 o'clock calls. You know, we are out here where it's cold, heat calls, frozen pipe calls, backed up toilet calls. Those are emergencies because somebody's living there versus when you're in a metal box, like that emergency is not as emergent because they should not be living in a unit. So big money has been chasing it, but they've also been chasing a lot of nicer asset class. Like we've been we've been talking to a publicly traded company in Canada about selling our portfolio to them. It, the deal's kind of falling apart, but they're actively purchasing middle market America, just buying whatever and chewing up whatever they can because the returns are better than what well, you know. Yeah, and the other thing is we know what California's cap rates are and I can tell you the East Coast isn't as crazy, but a lot of compressed cap rates because we're on the coast, right? Everything in middle market America, it just provides better returns for everybody. And honestly, there's a lot of people, I mean, you guys know you're losing everybody to Texas or Idaho or all the other states that kind of surround you. The same thing's going on over here in the East Coast. People are fleeing to Florida, Alabama, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi. Like they're, they're all fleeing south. And I think a lot of people are following those trends and chasing it. And I, I think there's a lot of opportunity because the country as a whole 
is underserved for the most part. And storage works not in macro markets, but very micro markets of three to five mile radiuses from the facility. And it's very predictable to what you can build or what the needs are for those areas. So I think those are all the benefits of storage. I hope I got all of them. No, no, I, I think you got them all. <laughs> there was a question I was going to ask, and it left me real quick. I was in the midst of that conversation. What is a quote that's yours or somebody else's that you resonate with? I'm sorry, what was that? What is a quote that is yours or somebody else's that you resonate with? Oh, well, it's not like, uh, well, I guess it is. Well, it's kind of like a quote slash uh, more of a theory, but I, I'm going to not do it justice. But, you know, I look at um, uh, Warren Buffett, and he talks about, you know, building a snowball and getting it rolled down the hill. And basically that you're building a snowball and your snowball gets so big that like if a piece breaks off, like Lehman Brothers, when he had issues with Lehman Brothers, it breaks off, but it doesn't affect the rest of the snowball. I did not do the quote justice by any means. Please go look it up. But creating that sm- snowball is one of the most powerful things you can do. And you can see we started with $15,000 <laughs> buying our first ghetto Section 8 rental in East Baltimore. And now we have $70 million of real estate. And it's wild to even think, yes, we've had tailwinds. We've had all these other things. But we have a snowball now that if something happens, we can continue rolling down the hill and make adjustments that snow gets packed back on and continues to build that snowball. Mm. Mm. You have enough momentum. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. How many people, how many people treat real estate? How many people treat real estate like a hobby? Right. And they don't treat it like a business. And have we done that? We could have had a few hundred houses. Me and Dan could be running around all the time. We wouldn't have Ryan who runs our whole operation and allows us to free up to look at more deals. And we would just, we would hit the ceiling and we can't go from, you know what it takes you to go from one to five million and five to ten million or ten to twenty, and you replace those numbers with whatever numbers you want. Most people don't want to do the hard work and blow it up, start over, and build and grow and do what it takes to get to the quote unquote next level. Because what worked to get from zero to a million is not going to work potentially from one to five million, and it's going to be painful. But again, you can't build that snowball. Most people get to that point and they just let it. They just like kind of go into the hamster wheel. Whereas us, we're always like, cool, we got it going. Boom. How can we make it a little bigger? How can we make it a little bigger? And bigger is not always more. Bigger sometimes is quality. Hiring the right people, doing the right marketing, making the right relationships or connections with people, speaking at the right events. Those are all things that help this snowball grow over time that allow you to run into the right people, to do the right deals, to know the right people to hire, the right people to partner with. And I think that's what's important overall and i think people need to take investing in real estate seriously it just it's just, it's just crazy man it's crazy to think that people throw hundreds of thousands of dollars at the stock market because they tell you it's right and you couldn't even tell who the ceo of the company is but then i asked someone to invest $25,000 side by side with us in a deal and you would think that i'm trying to steal their whole family right like that's what's crazy here is that most people don't take the time and appreciate and understand what it takes to grow your capital and invest in the right people and do the right deals to ultimately grow your capital to a point that allows you to be free. So uh, I, I saw a statistic like last week or two weeks ago, there's $31 trillion invested into the, the T-bill. It's crazy, dude. 5%. It's crazy. It's crazy. It is freaking. Look, those, those things are good if you have millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars and you want to protect some of your capital. I say the same exactly. thing about the stock market. 10, 20, 30 million dollars. You want to go stick five, 10 million bucks over there, whatever you got. 
a small percentage, stick it in the stock market and just let it grow slow because it's hard to deploy that much capital. But those of us that don't have a lot of capital, we're working with 25, 50, 100 grand. Let's find the best deal we can to get the highest return to allow us to get to that next level. Let's take our active income, make enough to allow us to become passive income so we can be free, right? Because being rich is really about time freedom and getting out from under your job as fast as possible. I think that's what's important. I always say that dividends and that T-bill stuff is for rich people as it is. Like if you're investing in dividends like and you got 20 bucks in your account, yeah, you make five dollars a month like five dollars a year like good congratulations but yeah no no <laughs> way you go go on like lending i don't even know if it's still a thing but like when we were broke i go on lending club and i would buy some of those like crap loans and i'd stick 25 bucks a week in that thing and just buy loans because again that snowball got going actually no it was like cool 200 bucks a week 300 bucks a week You're like holy shit how did i get that much money in there but again the velocity of capital dude everybody should have a compound interest calculator on their computer screen on their phone, and every time you're looking at stuff, just look at that. Stick it in the compound interest calculator. You know uh, what's his name from Shark Tank, Mister Wonderful. Your job is to send those little green soldiers out and come back with more of them, right? Like that is your goal, and just go do it and execute on that. So I remember my question. I, I forgot earlier. I'm going to ask it now before before we end. Did you hear about the the person that was living in a unit like last week and he went viral? Oh yeah, dude. I saw that he was living and then wasn't he like, Oh, I got my own gym here. He's kind of like making fun of it. Yeah. Yeah. That was wild. I mean, look, dude, we've, sorry. Good. No, I was going to say, has that ever happened to you? And how do you deal with a situation like that? Because I know it happens more often than not. It's not an anomaly. I know it happens, but I've never stuff like that. Yeah. You know, look, the class A facilities is not happening. Some of the stuff that we buy that, you know, was like legacy asset stuff. We had an issue with someone living in one of our sites. You know, usually you can call the police and they view it more as of a trespassing issue and you don't have to go through the eviction process. I had a tenant that was so rooted, mentally challenged, like all, like every Every dot that you, you know, an eye that you could cross or whatever the saying is, is just he hit every metric. So after a talk with the cops and the lawyers, because he really just needed help, right? Like yeah. he needed mental help to be in the right place. I had to file an eviction to get him out. Luckily, it was in Louisiana, took seven days to get done, and that was it. And it cleared up the problem and they got him the right help, got him in the right location. But for the most part, usually it's pretty cut and dry, black and white. Hey, get out of my facility. But I've had it. I've I've witnessed I've witnessed uh, other of my friends have it where he dude he bought a facility next day he had a family of five move in to a climate control facility in Alabama but they didn't move into the climate control facility part they moved into the hot part and it was the middle of the summer he's like dude I'm worried about these people dying like it happens man and those are the that's the dark side of storage that people don't want to talk everyone tells you how great it is it's recession proof and it's this and it's that dude we have people that move into our units online and we never talk to. So if you're not on top of your assets and paying attention to what's going on, it is very easy to get on overrun by people who are living in units, paying the dollar special, living there for 30 days and getting thrown out of their units. So I think this alludes to another question, then we'll end it. We'll get to the end here. But um, how do you prevent? Because I mean that I, in storage, you, you don't, you can't. You, there's there's a systems in place. You can not talk to that tenant. They sign something online. They put a, a card on file, and they have a passcode to get into the gate. And you can track their movements, but like, what other, what, like, what, what things can you put in place to prevent them and prevent that from happening? 
for moving in on you, I, I would say the biggest thing is you could just do all phone reservations, but you know, you want, you're trying to make this business as automated as possible. So the Absolutely. way we combat combat that is by having our boots on the ground, checking on the facilities once to twice a week and getting out ahead of the problems. And, you know, once you get a reputation for being a good facility, those problems usually stay away from you. It's when we buy the value-add facilities and we're flushing the trash out. You got to remember, the bums only know one thing, and I know this from the fire department. They just know one thing. They know where to go to be safe. So when all the bum friends are talking about, hey, I can go live here, now you got to flush 20, 30 people out of the system. I mean, we had this issue in Baton Rouge. We had people move in on us, and they continually were moving in using different names, using the dollar special. I turned the dollar special off for 30 days. Problem went away. They eventually went away, and they know not to mess with us because the cops will get called on them as soon as we recognize that there's an issue. So keeping your facilities in good operating condition, they won't even think about those types of things. You know, So that's really what it comes down to, just being on top of your assets. And it's the same thing in any piece of real estate. You don't want problems. Stay on top of your assets. Stay out ahead of the problems. Good answer. Good answer. I think this is, uh, it's been a great interview. Uh, where can people find you online? I got equitywarehouse.com. Where else can people find you online, social media-wise? Yeah, uh, most of our content's pushed out through Equity Warehouse. All the platforms, you name it, we're on it. I do the most interaction on Instagram. It's my favorite place to interact with people and DM. Easy for me to pay attention to. But we're on all the social platforms. Uh, you can check out equitywarehouse.com if you want to learn how we co-invest or co-lend with our friends and family. we got a bunch of case studies on there. And then finally... As you guys can tell, I love talking. We have our own podcast. It's called Real Estate Reserve Podcast. You can check that out. Co-host it with a friend of mine who's Ooh. a hard money lender. And uh, we talk, same thing. We're just bringing real people doing real deals, talking real life scenarios, not like, oh, I got guru so-and-so coming in to talk to her. Like, that doesn't serve anyone any value. Like, we want to hear from the real people doing real shit. They got the real stories that can talk intelligently on it, you know, and that's that's what we do, so... There you go. Equity Warehouse. And what's the podcast again? Real Estate Reserve Podcast. Real Estate Reserve Podcast. Go check it out. We'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for coming on, Ian. Ian Horowitz. I stick with names sometimes, but you got to roll with it sometimes. You know what Hey, I mean. man, it's the, Ju- it's the Jewish pronunciation. You got it. Don't worry about it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> thanks for tuning in. We'll see you on the next episode. Thanks, thanks guys. Bye.